I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high-quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Muses. Hello. I am your co-host, Shanti. And I am your other co-host, Lynx. Hello. We want to start off today by thanking a couple of new patrons. Yes. Thank you so much for your support. Even I know January and the beginning of the year is kind of a tough time to start up new subscriptions, but we really appreciate that you are investing in us. So we want to thank Darlene, Caleb, I love that name, mm-hmm. Melanie, this is my sweet friend Melanie that I know, thank you my love, and Chase. Yes, thank you so much. And I actually know Caleb. Uh, we worked at Massey Hall together, and he is a musician, a really talented musician, and he goes under the name The Sun Harmonic, so people should check him oh, out. Oh, I know that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Right on. Um, so, Lynx, I had a fantastic day today when we messaged, and I was like, what time are you coming over? And you told me. I was like, no worries. I'm just having a nice afternoon bath. I was in the bathtub at 3 p.m. today. That sounds so relaxing and perfect and that's exactly where i wish i were right now that's where you're gonna go afterwards oh yeah but it was awesome i just love that for the past 10 years of my life you know it's friday i would be at school wrapping up you know my teaching gig for the day and i just love that you know i didn't make the decision overnight it wasn't just like 
quit, decide to quit my job and then do it the next day. It was like a really calculated plan. And I'm just taking, you know, what more the time. You yeah. It's my time. It's, it's my life. Time. And you look really beautiful, too. Oh, thank you. I decided to do a little bit of makeup today for no reason. I'm not going anywhere, but just... I just was in the mood to add a little bit of bronzing and I've been really, maybe it's because we have this upcoming move to the farm that I'm just feeling so natural and into all these kind of different natural ways to feel good and stay nourished. And I've been really enjoying my dark roots. So I've been trying to tap into my um, natural hair color. I think since you've known me, I've been blonde. Yep. But I think that it might be time to just go back. And a part of me wants to go to the drugstore and get a box dye of brown of brunette i don't know if that's a good idea though i probably should do that yeah i wouldn't if you're not used to it especially of dyeing my own hair yeah i know i'm just i'm almost so anxious well like i don't know should i be a brunette when we go to la something to think about it's coming up and if i was brunette then we could definitely do the simon and garfunkel (laughs) album uh yeah album cover yeah and then the other amazing thing that i did today was this morning i made my very first coffee tonic so i won't tell you the secret of exactly what's in it because somebody created it and made it and is selling how to make these coffee tonics and uh, essentially it's just using like rose hip or a nettle and adding like a fat like a ghee or a butter into it your coconut milk your almond milk and then putting it all together and making this really frothy beautiful coffee infusion Mm, so that sounds delicious yeah that's how i've been living my life these days that's amazing well you've got an episode for us today i do my first of 2020 uh i'm gonna talk about rita and bob marley they have a really interesting fantastic crazy story so I can't wait to hear about them. Are we starting off with a song? Yes. I'm going to start it with Could This Be Love? For this episode, I read Rita Marley's book. She wrote a memoir in 2013 called No Woman, No Cry, My Life with Bob Marley. Fairly recent. Yes. I like that. So her book isn't always written in the order that things happened. I've done my best to put it in the order. Some things may be a little out of line, but this is all her story. And, uh, you know, doing my best to make it. It's a part of the researching uh, process. I appreciate when a book is nonlinear. It does give it a little bit of extra. I mean, I like them both, but I think it does make more sense when we do take what we've read and we do put it in a linear fashion and follow that kind of schema of early life and then kind of up until when they met their rock star. Yes, exactly. All right. Uh, Yeah. And it does make for an interesting read when they do that. Yeah. All right. Well, Rita Marley... She was born Alpha Rita 
Constantia Anderson on July 25th, 1946 in Cuba, but she grew up in a neighborhood in a neighborhood called Trenchtown, which is located in Kingston, Jamaica. As in the one that Bob was always singing about? Yes. And Bob, they they lived there together. All right. Uh, in her book, she describes the neighborhood as a ghetto that was full of thugs and thieves, killers, sex workers, gamblers. But along with some of the bad was a lot of good. And she kind of learned very early on how to survive and to do so. You you have to be smart. You have to be ambitious. You have to be strong. So those are really important things to her. So when Rita was five years old, her mother left. So it was her father, along with her brother, Wesley. His name was Leroy Anderson. He was a carpenter and a musician. And his sister, Viola, agreed to take him and his kids in to live with her. So she was really close to Viola and her grandmother growing up as well. So Rita's aunt sounds like a really great woman and an incredible role model. She was a dressmaker of wedding clothes, and they lived in one of the nicest houses in the neighborhood. Viola was the neighbor go-to for any issues. She'd help solve them. She created a weekly lottery for the neighborhood where they would all put their money in and they would have a draw at the end of each week. And she made sure everyone in the area voted as well. Hmm. So she was a really awesome ahead of her time kind of woman. Great. Yeah. Rita's own mother never acted like one. So having Viola there, she really got the love and, you know, female attention that she needed growing up. She was sort of her surrogate mother. Viola was also musical. She sang in the church choir and her uncle Cleveland was also a singer. So it was quite a musical family. Rita herself had a voice. So very early on, Viola was teaching her songs, putting her in the church choir, all of that. Jamaica had two radio stations, and on Saturday, one of them had a program called Opportunity Knocks, where people all over would be given opportunities that they were searching for. So when Rita was 10, she got on the show, and she got to sing and won the contest. Oh, nice. Yeah. So from that day on, Rita had this dream of being a singer. So things weren't always easy growing up, though. Rita learned early on, very early on, about discrimination, At school, the kids called her Blackie Toots because she had very dark skin and very white teeth. Oh. So she talks in the book about Jamaica having this really long history of color consciousness and like racial struggle. Even just skin tones mattered. Okay, yeah. So it was also difficult for families to stay together and keep afloat financially. So what would happen was usually in Jamaica, one or more family members would move to places like the U.S. or the U.K. for opportunities and then send money home to help the family back home. So when Rita was approaching her teen years, her father decided to go to England to help the family. So Rita and her brother assumed that they would be sent for in about a year or two, but finances made that impossible. Her father did keep in touch, but she didn't see him again for more than 10 years. Wow. Yeah. So this made her relationship with her aunt all the more important. She writes, Auntie meant so much to me because she gave me the reason to be a tower of strength. She gave me that ambitious feeling. She'd say, just because your mother left you and your father's gone doesn't mean you'll be nobody. I'm Auntie. You're going to be someone. Hell yeah, Auntie. Yeah. 
So when she was 14, another aunt of hers passed away and she had a son who was 11 named Constantine, or they called him Dream Walker. And he came to live with them as well. So they had grown up together and they were really close and her aunt had begun to teach them how to harmonize. So in the evenings, they would listen to the radio and perform all the songs together. They would get a station from Miami that played things like Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, Tina Turner, The Supremes. So all the goodies from America would influence her as well as hearing the ska sounds of Trenchtown. So her and Dream were getting so good that they began performing for the neighbors at um, half a penny a piece. Mm, half a penny. Half a penny. In Jamaica, the public education system is only free through elementary school, but not everyone gets a full education. It was really interesting reading her book and learning about Jamaica and, you know, from the 40s onward and their progress and thing. It's a really fascinating book for anyone who wants to read more about that. It was really interesting. So Rita ended up getting a half scholarship and her aunt agreed to help pay for the other half. Amazing. Yes. Uh, she said that after a while they had trouble, though, keeping up with the school books, the lunch money and all that. So her brother, Wesley, who was in college at the time, he got a day job and continued his schooling at night in order to help Rita. Wow. Yeah. So... By 17, Rita felt a responsibility, though, to pay her own way because she'd been, you know, living off her aunt for so long and her brother now. So while she still wanted to be a singer, she knew that she had to also kind of be practical. So she left high school and went straight into nursing school. And she also enrolled in night school to learn shorthand and typing in hopes of getting a secretarial job. So Rita's really on a path of making something for herself. So what should happen to sidetrack all this? She meets a guy and gets pregnant. You're right. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So she just begun waking at Kingston's biggest hospital. Then at 18 years old, she gets pregnant. Rita talks about how much shame she felt. Teenage sexuality was just not something that was okay. Of course. Yeah. And her aunt was really disappointed in her. And the boy's family felt the same, and they sent the boy off to England, which was another huge blow for Rita. So she says, you know, they were in love and they wanted to keep the baby, though everyone around them was insisting she terminate, but she refused. And in November of 1964, 19-year-old Rita had her first child, who she named Sharon. So though her aunt... Well, good, you know what? That was her choice. Yes. And she made a Interesting choice. Interesting that she had the in a way, an option. Yeah. And that, that was her choice. That was her so, choice. So, okay, good. And of course, even though her aunt was not happy about the situation, once Sharon arrived, she fell in love with her and, you know, things got better. So with Rita out of school and not working, her main focus was her daughter and music. Her and Dream were still constantly singing at home and a girlfriend of hers named Marlene began to join them. So they kind of formed this group. They were big fans of a group that were in Jamaica called the Wailing Whalers, who <laughs> were also a trio, though three men. And they recorded not far from where she lived, so she made it a mission to meet them. 
they would pass her house on the way to the studio and she began to talk to them until one day she was like, I'm also a singer. Did you ever go on a mission to meet Absolutely. a musician? Oh, That's like I remember all I those did. Days. I remember those days, <laughs> like seeing a photo of someone or listening to a band and then like making it my mission to either meet them yeah. or befriend them and then, and then accomplishing that goes it. Along with it. And uh, then accomplishing it, of course. Best feeling ever. Mm-hmm. Yes, that happened many times. That was my entire teen years. All right. So she was like, yeah, I'm a singer. And they were like, oh, like, why don't you perform for us? So one of the whalers, Robbie, was like, come to the studio, audition. There's this man known as Sir Coxone who owned one of the recording studios in town. Some of Rita's father's friends also knew this Coxone man. So it was set up for her and her friend and cousin to go and audition, sing some songs for him and for the whalers. So Robbie played guitar for them. It went really well. So Rita, Marlene, and Dream became the backing vocal team for the studio. Oh, and a side note about Dream. He was only 13 while all of this was happening. And the guys decided he needed a new nickname because they said, only old men have dreams. Young men have visions. So he became Vision. That's cute. Yeah. So Rita talks of Studio One being this wonderful creative space where everyone had a voice and a creative energy was just so wonderful. They'd be there all day and night, but no one would complain because it was just so much fun, right? They were now the Whalers backing vocals, but they also did backing work for other musicians who would come to the studio. So they became known as the Solettes. Coxon suggested that Robbie help train and rehearse them. And this is when Rita began having some feelings for this man. So this man is named Robert Nesta Marley. So Robert, or Bob, Hmm. as we know him, Bob was born on February 6th, 1945. His father was Captain Norville Sinclair Marley, a white retired British naval captain who was close to 60 years old when he impregnated Bob's mother, Sedella Malcolm, who was only 17 at the time. Yeah. So... By the time Sidney, as they called her, was 19. Just a blank stare. I I don't know why you say that. By the time Sidney was 19, she was married, impregnated, and abandoned by the captain. Of course. Yeah. According to Rita, Bob claimed he he only ever met his father once. But like Rita, he had this extended family on his mother's side who helped raise him. Hell yeah. Yeah. So Rita says that... At first, her relationship with Bob was more affectionate in a brother-sister type of way. She was a young mother. She didn't exactly know how to navigate that situation. And she really did feel all this shame of being an unwed teenage mom. So she kept her child a secret from everyone at the studio. But one day she was working and one of Rita's breasts started to leak and Bob noticed and she says that he immediately started asking questions about the child. Is it a boy or a girl? Where is she? Why did you keep her a secret? Where's the father? Can I meet her? So she says she felt concern and care coming from him and she was really impressed considering Bob was also still a teenager at this point. He was a year older than Rita. I was so wondering like, what the age difference yeah. was. Cool. So right now I'd say they're like 1920. Yeah. She says his interest in her child made her feel proud instead of ashamed. And he told her, like, go take a break, go home, feed Sharon, that he would see her later. And he did. He showed up at her house that evening so he could meet baby Sharon. Nice. So it was that moment that Rita's feelings went from like a sisterly thing to something stronger and they became kind of bonded. Sharon was about five months old, and 
um, Rita was still corresponding with the father of Sharon, it, who was in England. But Bob actually had issues with that and was like, you got to stop writing him. Like, he isn't helping to care for your child. He isn't here for you. And she, she did what he asked. Like, she stopped writing him. So Bob began kind of caring for them. He would bring them what little money or food he could to help them. In Rita's words, she says... And so, though I didn't expect this, I became his, as in, okay, now, guys, this is my girl. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, I'm having a little bit of mixed feelings. You're going to have a lot of that in this. Um, because I can only see some foreshadowing. Uh, but I don't know. Sometimes I'm surprised, and sometimes I get surprised. So, I'm not quite sure what to expect, which is a good thing. It's making for a good story. Thanks. Yeah. They had a unique relationship We'll get on to that. Okay. So the Whalers released their first album, The Whaling Whalers, in 1965 with Rita and the Solettes doing backing vocals. They also began performing live with the band, which Rita absolutely loved. She has never experienced concerts or, like in dance halls and things. So like all of that was getting bigger and, you know, super exciting for her. And in no time at all, the Whalers were the number one male group in Jamaica and the Solettes were getting, you know, good amount of attention as well. Interestingly, as a couple, they were both very serious about one another from the get-go and seemed to understand that this was a partnership. But Rita says even in those early days, Bob had other women. So, oh. Yes. All right. Yes. She knew about them, but he never brought them around her, and he cared about her so much and that, you know, they spent so much time together at the studio and stuff, and when he was caring for Sharon and Rita, she just... She just didn't care. These other women didn't bother. He can multitask. Apparently. He's multitasking. Can he ever? (laughs) (laughs) So she writes about their feelings growing, you know, stronger for one another. And I thought I'd share this beautiful little piece that she wrote. Bob made me want to try by trusting my musical instincts and making me responsible for harmonies, but demanding perfection. We were rehearsing in this little cove and oh, suddenly we were so taken away, looking into each other's eyes and singing. And then we put our mouths to each other's. We were still singing as if we were giving oxygen to each other. And I'm thinking, is this love? The song with that title hadn't even been written yet. Is this love? And then we were kissing and laughing and looking into each other's eyes. And I'm thinking, wow, this is magic. This is magic. I'm in love with this guy. I love him. We love each other. The moment you realize you love someone. Oh, I love that. And I was thinking about this yesterday. I'm so, I consider myself so fortunate and I'm so grateful that I have experienced love with a few different people like a real serious i'm talking about not the love that i thought that was love and realized later in maturity that it wasn't love Mm -hmm. but actual like in maturity knowing that was love that was love that was love and then that just reminded me of the moment you realize i love this person i love that she managed to remember and capture that moment and share it. And I thought I'd play a little clip here of a song that Bob and Rita recorded together around this time called Hold On To This Feeling. Let's do it. No Show we keep the love we got. 
So as I mentioned, Rita experienced racism because of her dark skin. And in the book, she says that Bob really helped her embrace her beauty as a black woman. She says, Bob began to show me the Rasta way to live. You're a queen, a black queen. You're pretty just as you are. You don't need anything else. You don't have to straighten your hair. You should wear it natural. So apparently being a Rastafarian was like the worst thing you could be in Jamaica. Oh. Which I never knew. No, of course not. So people looked at the Rasta way of life the way like straight laced Americans looked at hippies back in the 60s, you know, like dirty, good for nothing, lazy, smoking joints, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but for Rita, it was really a revelation that made her embrace herself and be happy in her own skin. Her aunt and her brother weren't happy about it. And she actually says that her brother was so angry that he w argued over it with her and slapped her in the face. Wow. Like that's how anti-Rasta people were back then. Yeah. it's And it's interesting when brothers take over a paternal role. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But Rita was really happy and determined to live life the way she wanted. So she was like, too bad. Mm -hmm. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working eating or even listening to this podcast and however you shop we all know and love the thrill of the hunt but do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals because Rakuten shoppers do with Rakuten they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back and you can get it too start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora Nike and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in and getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. So Bob and Rita got married on impulse. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say all of that was. Yep. You're right. Impulse. Uh, February 10th, 1966. Rita was 19, I believe, and Bob 21. So this was because Bob's mother sent for him from America. Bob refused to leave without marrying Rita first for fear that someone would find her and take her away from oh, him. Oh, great reason to get yeah. married. Great reason. <laughs> I feel like so many people got married like that in the war as well. And then, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they planned for him to sponsor her when he got to Delaware, which is where his mother was living. They performed a show on their wedding night and the bill was with uh, Jackson 5, which I thought was pretty what? cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Whole lot of surprises yeah. here. <laughs> they would open for a lot of, you know, bigger names that came to Jamaica because they were kind of the big band in Jamaica okay, at the time. Yeah. 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 
So she says it was a really happy day and they made love all night. And two days later, Bob left for Delaware. They wrote each other almost every day. And Rita continued doing background singing for other artists. And Bob was working as well. He worked first in a Chrysler factory and then a hotel before he was like, you know what? America is not for me. So he really longed to be back with Rita. And about eight months later, he abandoned Delaware and came back to Jamaica. Okay. So I'm going to play a clip from one of the first songs Bob recorded when he got home about him and Rita. It's called Nice Time. This is my home, So yeah, when Bob came home, it was back to music and back to business. And they were really smart and knew that to keep the rights to their music, they had to start their own company, which is exactly what he did. It was called Whale and Solemn, named after the Whalers and the Solettes. At one point, they were producing and manufacturing their own records. Bob and Rita were living at Rita's aunt's house still. Her aunt actually added a room on which faced the road for them to live in before they were married rita's aunt was getting like so angry because bob would kind of sneak in mm -hmm. at night and stuff and but finally they're married so she accepted it okay so she she put this little room in the front which faced the road and in the day they would curtain off part of it and make it into a little record shop and they actually sold their records out of there oh i love that right innovation so cool uh, so she said there'd be days where they sold three records and then others where they sold as many as like 25. And they created this little cage cashier's booth. And there are now two replicas of that cage, one at the Bob Marley Museum in Kingston and one at Universal Studios in Orlando. Okay. So it was like, that part's like really part wow. of their history. And Rita would also make deliveries of records on her bike. Oh, cute. So it's no surprise that Rita's aunt became, or her aunt's place became the center of like a social scene with Bob's friends and musicians hanging around all the time. They'd be playing music, smoking joints, playing soccer, eating all of Auntie's food. Mm -hmm. uh, they were getting successful, but they were still really struggling financially. Uh, they didn't pay rent, but they paid electricity bills. And Rita says that she spent a lot of time worrying about them making ends meet, especially because she relied so much on her aunt and she wanted to like give back to her aunt, you know? Oh, totally understandable. So yeah. Rita's really worrying about things now. So what happens to two young lovers worrying about the future when you're struggling? A little baby comes <laughs> along, Bob and Rita in the baby carriage. Yes. Oh, I'm good at this game. Yes. So yeah, they were still struggling. Bob was feeling like he needed to step up as a man and a father. And like, he was like, we need to cut ties. We need to move out into our own unit. Like we need to be our own family. Let's stop relying on your aunt. Things were getting kind of stressful because her aunt was kind of critical on them for a while. So Bob wanted to move back to his hometown, which was St. Anne. And while everyone thought they were crazy, Rita was like, I'm standing by my man. I'm moving with him. And they went to live in this house that Bob's father had given his mother, which stood empty since his mother was, you know, still in America. So this house had no water, no electricity, but who needs those things when you're young and in love? Exactly. <laughs> 
So they make the move, and Rita finds out right away, like, what everyone was warning her about. She writes, When I got inside and I saw there was no kitchen or toilet, I thought, oh my god, what did I get myself into? The smell of the place nauseated me. Whatever it is, I thought, that's my husband... This is what my husband has, and that's what I have to accept. I felt like I'd entered a different world. Well, she certainly had. But the next day they got to work. They rigged up a bed, some boards and logs. They prepared a kitchen. One thing that really sustained Rita was how welcoming the whole town had been. Like, when they arrived, the town was, like, singing and, like, welcoming them. And the whole town pitched in to help make their home, you know, nice. That's a community right there. Yeah, it sounds really nice. And... Rita, it made her stronger and want to stay. So in no time at all, they were kind of flourishing there, feeling like adults for the first time. They got their first home. They began growing their own food and had a pet donkey, which Rita would actually ride to like from the farm to like the village. Please tell me there's a picture of that somewhere. (laughs) Um, We should look it up. Okay. Rita would still visit her aunt every few weeks, go to Kingston, check on the records that they were selling. That was their only source of income at the time. So she would bring home whatever supplies they needed, like with what little money they had. About a month before the baby was due, though, they moved back to Kingston to make sure the baby would be delivered safely. And Sadella Marley was born August 23rd, 1967. She was named after Bob Marley's mom. Oh. And they also gave her a nickname, though, which was Nice Time, just (laughs) like the song that we just played previously. (laughs) Cute. Yeah. So back in Kingston, she's had her baby they both decided to kind of pick up their musical career again Rita realized music was more than just a financial gain for her but something she needed to do it was in her blood you know her friend and cousin who were in the group they both immigrated to the U.S. so Rita had to find two other women and they formed a group they were opening shows a lot they even traveled to Canada to play apparently And Bob would travel with them as security until the Whalers put out another album. So soon both of the acts were touring together all around the Caribbean. And when they were away, Rita's aunt would take care of her kids. Okay. Thank you, auntie. Yes. Uh, Things weren't moving fast enough, though, for Rita. They were still living in Trenchtown. She didn't like the idea of her children growing up there, you know, in poverty. All four of them were still living in that one room in her aunt's house. To top it off, Rita's pregnant again. Fertile Myrtle. <laughs> Thankfully, a change was on the rise. This is what happens when you're 22. Oh my god, I can't even imagine. Like, I can't. I cannot. I can't even imagine now. So, whew. So there was a change on the rise. Johnny Nash was an American singer. He was looking for new material for his company, uh, JAD Records, JAD Records, and he came to Jamaica. So Bob began working with JAD. And he he was finally kind of seeing U.S. dollars for the first time. And the Marleys became friends with Johnny Nash and his wife, Margaret. But Rita actually was noticing things that kind of bothered her. And this kind of is, I guess, foreshadowing for the rest of their time together as well. She talks about being at their home and Johnny being surrounded by groupies while his wife would be in the other room, like on the phone, talking about business and stuff like she just, I guess, accepted it. She wondered if that was like what it was like in America for all women because she had no idea. And it kind of made her like insecure and nervous. The answer is yes, that's what it was like <laughs> in America for all. Yeah. All rock wives, basically. Yeah. So Rita has other things on her mind, though, like the delivery of her son, David, which happened October 17th, 1968. Uh, David would become known as Ziggy Marley. I was wondering um, if Ziggy would be 
their child or yeah. if Bob would go on and have children with other women, which I believe he does, but I wasn't sure if, Z- yeah. if Ziggy was... Ziggy is one of hers. Okay. So work with Jad Records was going well and they were soon issued passports and visas to come in to work in the States. They planned to stay in Delaware with Bob's mom before heading to New York. Uh, the kids were coming with them too. Luckily, though, Bob mom, Bob's mom ran a daycare. So that helped with the kids when Bob and Rita went to New York. So Rita talks about seeing New York for the first time and how like wide-eyed and crazy it was for her. She'd only known of America through movies, and that paints a certain picture. For instance, she was shocked to see how many people were around who looked like her, and even more shocked to see homeless people in America. Mm-hmm. Do you, Was she shocked because in the movies, yeah. they're not showing homelessness? They're and- not showing homelessness representation of minorities is not... I mean, yeah, I there, there was some of that, but yeah. not enough, certainly. Right, right? of course. Hmm. For the homeless thing, she thought that only happened in Trenchtown. Like, that is a mm. ghetto, but America's like this rich nation. Like, surely they don't have homeless people, right? So Rita met up with her friend Margaret, who took her shopping and did her up like an American woman. So she had this new kind of polished look, and she was, you know, having fun. So their music business in the 60s, like so many other artists we know, the label told them, like, your fans can't know that you're married, right? That's going to affect sales, so Bob told the magazine Rita was her sister and Rita like learned of that by reading it and was not so pleased about that either. But she was like, you know what? I'm going to ignore this stuff. Otherwise, it's going to affect me, right? Yeah, you could think like if that's what you're being told by these people, then it's yeah. for the greater good. So ridiculous. So the longer they worked for Jad Records, the more they realized it wasn't the place for them, though. They used Bob's songwriting skills for other artists. They wanted to make Johnny Nash the big star, not Bob. And since he was working for them, he got minimum royalties because Jad owned the copyrights. She says almost none of what Bob recorded for them came out in his lifetime. But when Bob died, they flooded the market with it and made a lot of money off of him. So they wanted out of their contract. And it took some time, but there was still... And there were still kind of a few hard years ahead of them with Rita really worrying about their future. You know, is the music thing ever going to work out? Are we ever going to get out of my aunt's house? You know, by 1971, Rita was pregnant again and things still weren't looking up. In case you're wondering by now, Rastafarians do not believe in birth control or abortion. So while she did not want to add another hungry mouth into the family, her beliefs got in the way of that i guess okay baby number four yeah so to deal with this situation rita thought it was best to get out of her poor aunt's house who at this point was going nuts at the idea of having (laughs) another person to help support rita was to move to delaware with bob's mother their two daughters were going to stay behind with uh her aunt oh yeah yeah this is like exactly what happened with Bob and Rita, when they had to be separated from their parents. It sucks. It sucks. Wow. Yeah. 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 So she couldn't be with her kids, Ziggy. Or she did take Ziggy, actually, to Delaware. He was young. So Bob and the girls were supposed to come later. So Rita immediately started working as a nurse when she got to Wilmington. Rita did? Yes. Okay. But that wasn't enough to pay the bills, so she also did housework until she got a job as a live-in nurse-slash-housekeeper for this rich old lady. Unfortunately, dreams of Bob joining her were dashed when Bob received a draft notice. 
So because he had taken out citizenship papers a few years before, the U.S., like, they wanted him in the military, and Bob wasn't up for that, so the idea of him joining her was squashed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Besides that, Bob was desperately wanting to pursue his dreams. Rita says he was writing songs constantly. He was writing about her, too, like songs like Talking Blues, My Baby Is Gone, Baby Come On Home, you know, all of those were kind of written in that period. So as the months went on, Rita came closer to her due date, and she had never felt more alone. Like She's out there with Bob's family, who are nice, but it's still like in-laws. The distance between her and Bob was really killing her and, and affecting their relationship. For the first time, she was really sensing no optimism for their future. You know, she had a good relationship with his parents, but they were kind of old school and she felt that she was being taken advantage of at times. It wasn't an equal partnership. Let's put it that way. So this is a really depressing period for her. She really worked hard until her baby was due and their second son, Stephen, was born April 20th, 1972. Right away, she began writing home, trying to figure out how to go back there. But news from there was also troubling. She learned her um, from her aunt that things with Bob weren't so good. Mm. Bob was still living with the girls, but her aunt said that there were nights he wouldn't even show up. You know, he wouldn't come home at all. Yeah. When Rita did come home a few months later, she learned Bob had been dating not one, but two other women while she was away. Apparently, these relationships had actually began begun before Rita left. Because guess what? What? Both of those women were pregnant. Oh my goodness. Clearly Bob has like super sperm. I don't Mm -hmm. know. So Rita had their son in April. A woman named Pat Williams and Janie Hunt had two more boys of Bob's in May. Okay. Yeah. In the book, Rita says, I was very upset to learn about all of this, though it's common in Jamaica. But since then, I've come to love both of these boys and co- and to think of them as my sons. Wicked. Cool. Yeah. So Rita's on the fence here about, like, should I step away from Bob? Like, I'm hurting a lot over this. Do we have a future as a couple? You know, their finances are up in the air. Uh, this is what Rita says in the book. Even though I was in so much pain, I did not want to lose my husband. I asked myself, can I hold out? I knew he loved the kids as much as I did, but he was distracted because of the pressures. There was just too much mix up. Where there's weakness, I have to be strong, I thought. Strong for the kids. Even if I'm angry as hell at Bob, I have to be strong for him. I felt I had to take the lead and that we had to try to be friends because we were partners now. We were forever connected. We are family. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. Yeah. That like from what I've learned about her so far and just I guess how women deal with these kinds of situations in general, it kind of sounds like a little bit of self-preservation as well to take that stance. For sure, for sure. And you, you got to remember Rita's 25 yep. dealing with all this, right? She's got what, four kids, mm-hmm. no money. Of course she feels like she has to stick it out. What other option is there really, right? So also, if she's kind of intuiting Bob still having any kind of success, yeah. then, yeah. you know, you don't want to. Yeah. Some good news was on the horizon. OK, though. Bob met Tell a man me. named Chris Blackwell. He was the owner of Island Records. Chris saw that there was talent there and wanted to try to help him. So he gave the Whalers some money to go into the studio and put together an album. A deal was finally in sight. Blackwell had bought a big rundown house that had some acreage and some outbuildings set up 
and it became sort of a hangout rehearsal space for all the musicians. And after the first release, they arranged it so Bob would take over the property and eventually own the entire piece of land. So that was passed on to Bob as a final payment for his share of the deal that the Whalers signed with Island Records. Got it. So finally, Bob had this house. Not only that, it wasn't in Trenchtown, but in a kind of swanky area they never imagined being in. But Rita felt really apprehensive about it, though, since it was more of a communal space and with the other whalers there, she says, you know, there was always girls there and things going on. So she didn't really want her kids to be in that environment either. So she decided, I'm going to hold back. I'm going to wait it out. I'm going to see how things go. But she would still go there like every day and hang out and everything. Okay. So the Whalers' first album, Catch a Fire, was an instant hit and the beginning of really incredible things. They toured England, the States. They were opening for like Slime's Family Stone in Vegas. In Jamaica, they were instant celebrities. Women began moving into the house. Like I said, Rita wasn't stupid. She knew what they wanted. They wanted Bob. She's so level-headed about it, though. But she says, I don't want to put it entirely in a negative way since this opportunity made it possible for him to create what he did. So like she knew, I guess, equal balance, right? Good things come, not so good things come. Well, you know, he's lucky that he married somebody so level-headed oh, oh God, and smart yeah. and mature because, like, yeah, if it would have been another woman with any kind of other temperament, like, he would have been in. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, Rita was going to the house, like, every day. It was um, a house on Hope Road. I'm going to call it Hope Road from now on, so I wanted to make sure that was obvious. She says, like, Bob didn't even sleep there some nights. He was going home to Rita a couple nights a week. He would stay at the Hope Roadhouse or somewhere else other nights. Money started to roll in, and Rita says that Bob was always very generous and always made sure that his family had everything they needed. Bob kept trying to convince Rita to move into the Hope House, but there was little space on the premises that the family could have, you know, alone. And as Rita puts it... At this point, though, I wanted my independence. I wanted to leave Trenchtown, yes, but not at the expense of my self-respect. Yep. Yeah. So what Rita did, she finally started looking for housing outside of her aunt's house and outside of Bob's place for her and the kids. So Bob wasn't super keen on this, but Bob's screwing half the women in Jamaica and doesn't have a leg to stand on at this point. So he agrees to give Rita the money for her to find a new place. So at this point, Bob is with a woman named Esther Anderson, who was a model and a photographer that was working with the Whalers. And Ooh. oh, I'm sorry, right? But ouch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. poor Rita. That one's gotta hurt. Oh God, yeah. All of his women were just unbelievable. Honestly, you can find so many photos of him with other women too. So this woman was helping the record label, and the label was using him or her and Bob's relationship as like PR. Okay. Yeah. So. The home that Rita found for them was pretty awful at the time, though. It was hard to get to. It had no lights, no water. But that is how strongly Rita wanted her independence. And so on moving day, she stopped by Hope Road with the kids to kind of let Bob know, like, okay, we're, like, we're moving now. This is where we're moving. And when she got there, she ended up having a confrontation with Esther. Rita says that Esther answered the door. Bob was sleeping. Esther got mad at her and was like, why are you here? Let the man sleep. And, uh... Obviously, being the wife of the man, Rita's like, um, who do you think you're talking to? 
And Rita actually says that Esther was yelling at her, why don't you stop breeding? All you do is breed. Bob needs a career. You know, let him have his life. Like, all this shit before Bob finally woke up hearing these women yelling. Mm -hmm. And and this all happened in front of the poor kids. Mm. So Rita was, like, really frazzled, really upset. She was like, I'm out of here. And that night she says that Bob actually came to the place and... uh, she actually really felt good about it because even again that the place wasn't great but she was like on her own she was standing up for herself it was like the first time she truly felt like an adult they soon got utilities they were the first in the neighborhood to get them and that led to the whole community getting them so it was like a victory for everyone okay, yeah um risa rita was also standing up for her kids telling bob exactly like what this is what your family needs and again he always provided there was never an argument over that And Bob was still paying Rita attention. He would bring her gifts like fruit, flowers, chocolate. So this is where it's kind of confusing because like, it's like they still have a relationship. It's shifting into a different one, but I think they were still like intimate sometimes, but then not other times. And she understood, as she put it, that these women were for a time and she was for a lifetime. That's how she saw it. I think Esther was the only one she ever had a confrontation with. After that, she says that she made sure to not get in contact with any of them. And Bob made sure their paths wouldn't cross. So out of respect to her, like he wouldn't flaunt it in her face. Cool. Um, I mean, I guess. I guess. That's something. Thanks, Bob. Um, She says, you know, it did still hurt at times. But other times their relationship would be going so well that she wouldn't even think about these other women. So... Rita was really embracing her independence, though. She put her kids into school. She made the home. She planted a garden. She got her license, which was like a huge deal for her. Over time, Bob was touring a lot. So Rita and the kids wouldn't see him for a while. But when he did come home, he was always going over there to visit them. Rita describes these times as more friendship based. They were still kind of figuring out their new roles in each other's lives. Bob was, of course, seeing other women. Um, But there was always affection between her and Bob. I like that. Yeah. Sometimes physical, sometimes not. Um, But one thing that continued was their musical relationship. Interesting. Yeah. Many times Bob would come to visit, they'd sing or compose together. Apparently Rita actually helped him write a lot of the songs back then. And as the kids were going up, it became obvious that they shared the talent and passion of the family. So both of them, of course, really encouraged their kids and they would put on little like Marley shows, as they called them, in the cellar for friends and family. So with Bob away as much as he was, Rita had to find other friends and amusements. She met a man named Owen Stewart, who was known as Tacky. He was a Jamaican soccer star. (laughs) They developed a close friendship, which did not please Bob, which is interesting. Well, I was wondering um, if something was going to be happening on her end with somebody else, you know, because she deserves a relationship. Yeah, right. She does. A stable one. She says that one time Bob actually confronted Tacky, almost getting into a physical altercation. And Bob was like, you're sleeping with my wife. You know, ironically, Bob shows up with a woman he's sleeping with and has this fight like in front of her. So, you know, I guess he can screw whoever he wants, but God forbid she does. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like those incidents that led Rita to kind of reaching her limit. She says by 1973, Bob was just having so many public affairs that she didn't even want to be physically involved with him anymore, you know, knowing He was having God knows however many other women at the same time. 
his behavior also led to her and Taki's friendship turning into something more. So he was really there for her. He saw what she was putting up with, where Bob was concerned. He was not amused. So Taki really cared about the kids. It was there for them as well. You know, anytime Bob was away. So there's a, there's very alarming and triggering and disappointing incident in the book. So I did want to warn people, if you don't want to hear something negative about go forward a minute maybe so rita says that there's this incident in her words she says that she was almost raped but uh she was definitely raped uh she says at that point she'd really drawn the line with bob in regards to their sexual relationship it was over he, she wanted nothing of it he came over he wanted to have sex she said no and she says he said you're my wife and i want to therefore it happened so she says that happened, and guess what? No. She gets pregnant. Ah. Oh. So her third daughter, Stephanie, was born in 1974. So because she was in, you know, these other relationships at the time and stuff, some people, including Bob Marley's mother, claim that Stephanie is not Bob's, but Bob always claimed her as her his own, and Rita clearly believes so as well. I'm only adding that in because I did more research on their kids online, and I saw that. Okay. But Tacky wasn't, isn't even listed as a father. Another man is, so I don't even know. Either way, again, Bob saw Stephanie as his, and knowing he has super sperm, I'm not doubting it. Right. So Bob was still providing for the family. They were working out their ever-shifting relationships, still having relationships with others. Rita, her home garden was becoming so successful that she ended up going into farming full-time. Nice. Yeah. Bob, brought, my girl. Yeah, Bob bought her a farm, and Reed attended to it. She grew coconuts, naysberries, star apples, oranges, avocados, and more—all organic. And there was so much produce that she had to give a lot away. Until Rita had a clever idea of opening up a little depot on Hope Road. Perfect. Yeah. So Bob was still there, and all his musician friends. So in time, Rita created the Queen of Sheba restaurant. <gasps> yeah. Which was a huge success. It began as a juice bar, but soon had an oven and they were creating more. So this also helped to make Rita more involved in Bob's life again and the kids as well, because she would bring them to Hope Road and they'd be there all day. So things were pretty good in their own way. But as we know, Rita does have this thing about wanting to be independent. And at this point, she's starting to wonder, you know, should I divorce? Like, should we? Like, I don't know. She, you know, she just wanted something of her own. She was feeling aimless i guess a little bit so this led to rita joining a, a drama group that she describes as a light opera group and that led to rita singing again so from there she met up with some old friends who were also some of jamaica's top female singers judy mowat and marcia griffiths who actually had a hit in the states called electric boogie and they performed together one night at one of Marsha's gigs, and the crowd went nuts, and it incited that passion and read it again to be Love like, it. I need to be on stage. So at the same time, the Whalers were ending their three-album deal with Island Records, and the other two Whalers weren't exactly happy with all the PR that had been done with the group. Going from the Whalers to Bob Marley and the Whalers was not something they agreed on, and the other two members just decided to go their own way. So that was really difficult for Bob, but he pushed forward. He kept the name, found new musicians, got a new deal with Island Records, just him. And while recording his next album, he asked Rita, why don't you come down to the studio, bring your friends, Marsha and Judy, 
And when they got there, they did backing work for a song he was working on at the time called Natty Dread. And that session was so successful that it led to Bob asking the label if they would come on for the rest of the album, if the, the Were trio. they getting compensated for it, do you think? They were, actually. Um, Rita actually says that in the book that Bob asked her, like, what how much mm-hmm. and she was like whatever you're giving the other two mm-hmm. so she stood up for herself and yeah they were getting good pay and it was a huge deal for rita and definitely kind of reignited something there bob then asked if rita would come on tour with him singing on stage every night and so rita and the girls who are now known as the i3 they were on board and part of the band So thank God for Rita's aunt saving the day again, agreeing to take care of all these kids so they could go on tour. They also had enough money now to hire a helper for her aunt. And a friend took care of Rita's restaurant while she was away. Cool. Yeah. So tour was a really exciting experience for Rita. She had done little ones before, but, you know, now they were doing big ones. They had their own bus, own hotel rooms. Rita insisted to be treated as one of the I3, not Mrs. Marley. Yep. And even though she did still tend to Bob on tour, she'd make sure his clothes were ready, that he was eating properly and whatnot. Uh, She, you know, felt independent. They mainly toured Europe around this time, usually for like three months at a time. Then they'd come home for a bit. Uh, And they were touring like that for the next seven years. Wow. Yeah. Also making albums in between. Of course. I had no idea that their relationship had this kind of longevity. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And of course, over seven years, there was lots of highs and lows. Their relationship went from something more to just friendship, you know, and back again over time. Uh, Bob would still bring his flings on tour at times. And, you know, when things were rough between them, while also being super possessive of her and what she could and could not do on the road. Annoying. Yeah. There were incidences where he would get jealous and acted, you know, irrationally over nothing and... Rita talks about having her two girlfriends, you know, in the band and how much that helped her greatly. Rita says, sometimes on tour, if we had an argument before the show and Bob wanted to apologize while we were performing, no woman, no cry. He'd use that opportunity to come over to me on stage, put his arms around my shoulder, sometimes with a kiss or a whisper and say, I love you in my ear. I was going to play that clip, but... I'm going to play that at the end of the episode. I thought instead I'd play a tune that apparently Bob wrote for Rita to sing, and it's called Play, Play, Play. So let's uh, play some of Rita. That was a great choice to put that in. So one cool thing that happened while on tour was Rita got to meet two of her half-sisters because her dad had had an affair with a woman in Sweden. You know, he was in England. And Rita found out about them in the 70s. And while touring, she had this big family reunion. They got really close after that. So that was really cool. Yeah, neat. 
You mentioned, you know, Bob and his other kids and everything. So if you're wondering about the two other sons that Bob had the few years previous, it was Rita who actually made sure that they were tended to and that those women got enough money to provide for them. But there came a point where Rita thought all the children should be together. And Rita says they took them in. So I have no idea exactly how many of Bob kids from other women she began raising, but she said their mothers would come and visit like Hope Road and that they seemed happy with the situation. Like they were living there. So Bob had three more children with random women in 1973, 75 and 76. So I know for sure they took in Karen, who was born in 1973 and at least one of the sons born in 90 or 72. Um, not sure how many others, Okay, but there's a lot of them floating around now. Hard to keep up with all the kids. Rita actually did confront Bob about all these babies, and Bob's line about it was that Rita couldn't possibly have all the babies that he felt that he should have. And oh. he, yeah, he didn't want to put the burden on her body. Um, I'm doing you a favor. Yes. Uh, you know, you that's too much having one every year. So these other women, you know, they're making up for it. He's a master bullshitter. Thank huh? you. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> So Rita actually has her last child, her sixth. That was a daughter named Sarita in 1975. So she had all daughters except for Ziggy? Two sons, I believe. Oh, okay. And that daughter was with Tacky, the guy. Oh. Yeah. That he was still around and, you know, a good friend. Yeah. So some may know that Bar Marley sometimes sang about political issues and was a bit of an activist. In late 1976, there was this big election happening in Jamaica, and tensions were really high. There's a lot of issues and divide, lots of crime and death. At the time, the government actually came to Bob to help bring the people together, and a free peace concert called Smile Jamaica was about, or they was going to take place on December 5th, 1976. So tensions at that time were at an all-time high, and they were actually in danger because, you know, people began assuming things about Bob's, you know, where his political intentions lay, things like that. So on the Friday before the concert, Rita was leaving for rehearsal when she got into her car with two other young men from the neighborhood. And she saw some men that she didn't recognize coming mm-hmm. at them with guns. Wow. So she starts the car, shots ring off. Rita feels something warm coming down her neck and realizes she was shot in the head. What? Yeah. Yeah. So she immediately stopped the car, rested her head on the steering wheel. She says that one of the gunmen came over, put the gun to her head, but then said, everyone's dead and never fired again. So someone nearby must have heard the shots and called for police because she heard sirens. They, the guys ran off. Rita got out of the car to find Bob. Um, Bob had been in the kitchen at the time. He was also hit in the elbow by a bullet. And the man that had been inside with Bob, Don Taylor, his manager, was shot five times. But miraculously, none of them were actually killed. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they were admitted under police guard to the hospital. And Rita was told they couldn't take the bullet out of her head yet as it was too close to her brain and they needed the swelling to go down. It was actually her dreads that saved her. Her Rasta dreads. Wow. So Bob wasn't going to let, you know, this experience scare him into hiding. And he was like, you know what? I'm performing Sunday. I'm doing this concert as planned. Uh, Some of the band members did back out and others came to help support. But guess who didn't back down? Rita. Uh, I was going to say that. Still in her hospital jacket with her head all bandaged up. Performed. How badass. Fucking badass. 
Uh, she does say that, you know, those shots did change them, though. And, you know, it did scare Bob and, you know, being in the public and everything. Like, I can't even imagine. Um, they did end up finding the men responsible for the shooting. Whew. So I need to talk about a woman now uh, that many remember as one of Bob's great loves. Her name was Cindy Breakspear. Cindy was actually born in Toronto. Oh, cool. She was raised in Jamaica since she was four, though. Of all Bob's flings, Cindy was most definitely the one, you know, he probably loved the most next to Rita. So I guess it makes sense Rita kind of disliked her from mm-hmm. the beginning. Um, you know, she knew she was probably her biggest threat. As I mentioned, you know, the timelines are a little off in the book. And when I look up Cindy and Bob's timeline online, uh, it mentions them entering a relationship in 1977. But in Rita's book, Cindy definitely was in Bob's life before that, maybe as early as 74. So I'm not really sure when exactly they became a couple or whatever, but maybe as early as 74. So Cindy even lived at Hope Road and paid Bob rent for a time. Rita does say over time she began to like Cindy and they never had any bad confrontations or anything. Cindy was respectful to Rita as much as she could be considering the situation, I guess. So by 1977, Rita and Bob were off again. His focus was on Cindy. Um, While Rita and Bob were dealing with the shooting, Cindy was experiencing her own fame because she won Miss World title in 1976. Wow. Yeah. So Rita mentions that her, like Cindy and Bob planned to do a movie like Beauty and the Beast, but that fell through. Um, She also mentions that Cindy and her mother had expectations that weren't met. She believes that Bob had told Cindy, like, I'm going to divorce, I'm going to marry you. But that never happened. Um, Bob did, however, move to England with Cindy and record for like about six months after the shooting. And in 1978, Cindy had their son together. His name is Damien. Oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, Damien Marley. So Rita and him still talked almost every day, though, and she was still part of the band and went to England to record and tour and everything. Something really awesome for Rita happened, though, in the end of the 70s. She was finally getting some recognition and attention for her own talents, and the possibility of a solo record arose. So a French record company named Hansa offered Rita a deal for an album. Bob was supportive of Rita, but not very supportive of this. So apparently a PRR agent named Catherine came to visit Rita to like discuss everything. And Bob literally chased this poor woman out of the house, like in tears. Not cool. No, but Bob. Catherine was also a badass. Cool. And she yeah. was like, I'm not letting this man scare me. Yeah. And she really pushed for Rita to, you know, do her own thing. And they did like, press together and everything so that album would be called who knows who knows it feels it the unfortunate thing with this though was it all began to break for rita just at a time when bob's health started to be an issue Mm. so in 1975 bob had an injury playing football when another player was wearing spiked heels sorry not heels shoes and stepped on his big toe so bob ignored his toe it never healed properly, and then in 1977, he re-injured it, and the nail fell off. So, Ugh. yeah. After that, a malignant melanoma developed. Bob did not believe the doctors who diagnosed this. They said that they could take care of it by cutting off his toe, but Bob was adamant about keeping it, and no matter how much Rita tried to rationalize with him, he just like wasn't having it. She says she could feel his anger and resentment towards her whenever she did mention it to him. And it got to the point where she felt forced to kind of support his uh, decision to keep the peace. Keep the toe. Yeah. 
So Bob kept believing, you know, there's a sore toe, it's going to heal. He checked himself out of the hospital. He went on tour like that. He was like playing crazy shows. That last tour, Rita talks about how she felt she was losing him. The bond was eroding. His health was deteriorating. He was ignoring it, working even harder than ever, you know, up early for interviews, doing like double shows sometimes. She really felt helpless and they would always just get in arguments. Um, one time when they were in New York for a show, Bob actually passed out in Central Park. So a doctor came, checked on him, checked the toe, which of course was getting worse. And uh, they said, you know, this is spreading, but Bob would not slow down. She says for the first time on a tour, there was like so much secrecy. People were trying to keep her away from him, things like that. A lot of people, of course, relied on Bob for their paycheck, right? So yeah. keeping him going was... We know the story. Exactly. This is not unique. Exactly. Hiding a musician's pain. Yeah. So this doctor finally was, you know, confronting Bob saying, "You, it's cancer. Like this toe, it's spread... It's in your brain, it's in your liver, it's in your lungs. The doctor said, you know, you're going to die. And finally they decided, okay, like, maybe Bob needs some rest. So Rita was, like, really outraged that it got to this point, and she did everything she could. She got Bob checked into a cancer treatment center in New York and later Miami for radiation treatments. And Cindy actually came from uh, England, and uh, together they cared for him. Wow. And, you know, women are incredible. Women are incredible. Yeah. At this point, Cindy had actually moved on in 1981. She would marry another man, but her and Bob were still close. He was the father of her, her son, right? She didn't stay until the end, but she was certainly there to show her love and support. So I'm not going to go into the painful details of his struggle and deterioration. He lasted longer than expected, but ended up passing away on May 11th, 1981. He was 36. Wow. Yeah. Rita, of course, took it extremely hard. This was not only, you know, her great love, but her first real experience with death, too. A month before his passing, Bob received Jamaica's Order of Merit, and after his passing, tens of thousands came to mourn and pay their respects. Um, the funeral was, you know, a celebration of him. Leaders from both political parties spoke. The Whalers played. You know, the I-3 played, and so did Rita and Bob's kids. Wow. They were now known as the Melody Makers. So unfortunately, like so many other stories we've told, when the musician dies young and at a high point in their popularity, a lot of legal battles tend to ensue. Peter and Bunny, the previous Willers, came out of the woodwork again. There was issues there. A lot of random people came forward with crazy claims. Uh, Men pretending they're Bob's father, more supposed children of Bob's, you know, all that kind of stuff. A big old mess. A big old mess. Yeah. But Rita was really determined to fight and maintain Bob's legacy, make sure all their kids were supported. So that's how Rita formed RMM, Rita Marley Music or Robbie Marley Music, kind of both. Um, She was a reluctant business manager at first, but she knew she had to do it and it came with a lot of trial and error and like broken trust and stuff. She goes into a lot of detail in the book. You know, if if you want to read about it, check it out. I'm going to skip some of that. Another thing that sounded familiar was that Rita decided to turn the Hope Road home into the Bob Marley Museum. Cool. And that's operated by the Bob Marley Foundation, which is a charitable organization. Rita says all the kids are involved in the place in one way or another, and those who visit shouldn't be surprised to find one or more of them on the grounds on any (laughs) given day. That'd be cool to visit. 
And Rita's Queen of Sheba restaurant has even survived. Wow. Yeah. They also have a bit of a museum at Universal Studios in Orlando, which they've given like a lot of artifacts in order to keep spreading his legacy. So she did like a Priscilla Presley. Yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, Hank Williams kind of thing, you know, so many. And they also put on concerts every year on his birthday that feature, you know, the family members and the I3. So Rita would go on to be involved in many more recordings and many of their children, if not all of them, went into music as well. Ziggy and the Melody Makers were a group from 79 to 2002. They won like four Grammys, I think. Their whole family is involved in musical things in one way or another, you know, on stage, behind the scenes. They're a pretty cool family. And Rita also went on to put out more albums herself. In 1991, her album We Must Carry On was nominated for a Grammy. Cool. Yeah. Oh, love it. So with the kids grown, Rita found a new purpose in 2000 with her Rita Marley Foundation, which is a non-for-profit organization that took her to Africa, and she helps to work there and alleviate poverty and hunger, and has also given out many scholarships to music students in Ghana. So cool. And the foundation also hosts annual Africa Unite concerts to spread global awareness. So... Of course, the Bob Marley Foundation does the same for those in Jamaica, helping to make places like Trenchtown, you know, better for those who live there. And uh, the book was published in 2013. And Rita mentions that she was a grandmother of 38. Oh, my God. (laughs) I have no doubt that that has probably risen. But the research on that just seemed way too daunting. So forgive (laughs) me. You've done enough. Yeah. (laughs) 38. Holy crap. Um, In 2016, she suffered a serious stroke and has sort of kept a low profile since. However, she did attend a public event in March of 2019 where her and the I3 were actually honored with an award for their contribution for music. Amazing. Thanks. And that's uh, that's Bob and Rita. Oh, that was so good. Thank you. An hour ago, I knew nothing about either of those people. And now I'm just, again, just floored with this piece of music history that I'm so glad that uh, you told us about. Thank, Thank you. you. The research was incredible. The story was great. Rita's obviously amazing. It's just another one of those stories where, you know, she's always there. She's part of the music, not just as a muse, but up on stage, yet not a lot of people know. So now you know. Thank you so much. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. We have many more coming up for you this year. And if you want to listen to more music podcasts, head over to Pantheon Podcast. Ah. Just type it into Google. You'll find it. And if you want to hear us talking more about music, check out our Patreon. Yep. We've got much more happening over at Patreon. Little kind of bite-sized stuff, half-hour episodes. We add in lots of music. We have lots of fun. And for $5 a month, uh, we really appreciate that contribution. Yeah. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you so much, Lynx. Incredible. Thank you. See you next time.
Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read Podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make season two even more memorable together.